Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. In this episode, we are joined by Faith Jarvis and Slime Mold Time Mold. Slime Mold Time Mold is a sibling pair. Well, Slime Mold Time Mold, how are you guys doing today? Pretty good. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to come on. Um, do you guys give, mind giving us kind of a brief, like a anonymized or vague bio and, and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Uh, if it's all right, I'll go first. Uh, I'm yeah. sort of a cognitive scientist, historian, and, and statistician. Um, and so that's sort of what I bring to the table. Yeah, and my background um, is mostly in sociology and chemistry, but I've worked in a couple biochem labs um, and generally pretty broad interests. Yeah, and should I, should I talk a little bit about like the big picture stuff that we have coming up? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so in terms of like uh, future interests, uh, and you can see a little bit of this in the obesity work, uh, we're interested in things in cognitive science because we think that part of our new approach is that treating obesity like a cognitive science problem. And part of that is uh, paying a lot of attention to control systems, right? So control systems seem like they're relevant here, right? That you have a set point and you're trying to maintain homeostasis around it. We think that that's going to be an important, or it's an interesting topic that's really multidisciplinary. And so we're gonna try to do some work related to that, uh, do other work related to that coming up. I love that. And, and how did you guys first get interested in obesity? Wait, you know, was there one moment or you guys, have you guys both been thinking about it for a while and it just kind of congealed in, into some, some more um, like robust thoughts? Like, like, how did that come about? Yeah, it's a great question, but it's another one of those things where there's not like a specific story. Uh, I mean, there was a specific time. So we've both been following it for a while independently and come up with some of these thoughts independently. And then we had a, a long uh, road trip and each of us was like, oh, you were thinking about this too? Maybe we should write something about it. So there was a moment where it came together, but there wasn't like an instigating event, at least not for me. It's just like something you follow and eventually pieces fall together. Yeah, it was something that just didn't really make sense to us. Something where there seemed to be a lot of explanations, but I didn't really understand how the explanation actually explained what we were observing. I think that's a really good way of putting it. You just notice all these things that make you go, huh, that's funny, I wonder. Can you talk about those things a little bit? You, you know, um, I was recently talking to a friend of mine who's a resident in preventative cardiology, and he was really into ketogenic diets for a while. And then he did a deep dive on all the nutrition science. And he's like, well, you know, like this is just eventually his message to me was that, you know, it is just so much more complicated than um, I, he can even grok, right? Um, so, you know, how did you guys first get interested in kind of the environmental aspects of obesity and how that might play into and, and that and the fact that it perhaps it's not just calories in calories out, or it's not just sugar, or it's not just, you know, excess carbohydrates or something like that? Yeah, well, if you keep up with the people who are, you know, researching it directly, if you keep up with the academic world, 
they haven't really believed in this in a long time, right? Stephen Guinea says, Stefan Guinea says uh, that he doesn't think that there's anyone in the research world who really believes calories in, calories out. Oh, he really? was saying that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, and so they're looking at other models and that hasn't really gotten out. So if you follow the primary sources even a little bit, uh, you know that most people weren't taking it, uh, taking those simplistic views seriously for a while now. Um, what was the original question? So I, I guess the original question was, um, you know, I, I guess, how did you get interested in, in the environmental aspects of obesity? Like, like you know, perhaps there's this, you know, chemicals in the water and, you know, things going on that uh, might explain, and, and it's not just purely people's diets or something like that. Yeah. Well, like I was saying, uh, if you read people who are doing research on it, you know that most of the sort of public explanations don't pan out and haven't panned out for maybe a decade now. If you want to talk about the 2010s, you could say that was sort of the decade where most of the theories that looked promising fell apart in one way or another. People started trying things and a lot of them just didn't go anywhere. I mean, most of them. And so we sort of thought there has to be something else. And if you look at a bunch of these things that we identify and call mysteries, we were like, well, a contaminant really seems like it would make sense. And if, you know, it has to be plausible because we know there's stuff in the environment and we know that chemicals can make you gain or lose weight. I don't know if my co-author has anything to add to that. Yeah, I mean, there's this Lancet quote that we love um, that I don't remember the exact wording off the top of my head, but but basically that we've never had an ob obesity intervention that actually worked. And to me, that's, you know, strong evidence that none of the existing theories totally have everything right, because if they did, you know, we would be able to design interventions, make an experiment that would actually induce a noticeable change. And that just hasn't been the case at any large population scale. And I think from there, yeah, it was really primarily driven by the mysteries that we start out with. And it was kind of, you know, the whole project started with those mysteries and we were like, okay, let's look at it. Let's see what are alternate explanations. And the environmental contaminant one, like, like my co-author said, is just, you know, it's obviously plausible. So we just wanted to see to what degree is it possible. And I think, you know, we more than anyone else are so surprised by how strong the case ended up being. Yeah, it's worth saying that when we started out, we were like, this seems interesting and plausible. Let's check it out because no one has done a really deep dive on this. And it just kept getting stronger and stronger. And so, you know, we're not trying to push an agenda. We didn't know how good it would turn out. We kept being surprised. Uh, and also, so like there are people who had suggested things that were similar to this, right? There are people who were like, maybe it's a virus, maybe it's a contaminant, maybe it's, um, do you remember one of the other ones? Uh, there were some different things, but like, or, you know, like maybe it's vitamin D, no one gets enough sunlight anymore. Um, but those didn't line up with the mysteries, but contaminants did. We were like, okay, that seems like it's plausible. Let's pursue this. Let's see if we can get any evidence for or against it. Do, you know, why do you think uh, traditional nutrition researchers just have been unable to pick up this kind of $20 bill on the sidewalk so far? And that's kind of, that's like a very difficult question, I think. So, you know, there might not be a great answer, but. Yeah, um, it is a hard question. And also, so on the one hand, assuming we're right, it does seem like a $20 bill being picked up off the sidewalk. Um, but we also got to give credit where credit is due. All of our work is based off the work of hundreds or thousands of other researchers. A lot of, uh, you know, we didn't collect almost any original data. 
And there were definitely publications where people were saying, you know, maybe it is something that is environmental. Um, and the only thing that we've really added is we've sort of made a stronger background case and we've come up with a few uh, particular contaminants that no one else was looking at. So it's not like they dropped the ball entirely. And I don't know, it's institutional, right? I think we could speculate, but it doesn't seem right. that productive to me. I mean, I'd yeah. love to be like, oh yeah, it was definitely this, it was, it's but... this thing. It, it does I, mean, seem... I guess I would say something about nutrition research, but also, you know, that I think is true of any large body of literature is just that at a certain point you have lots of people doing different kinds of work and it's of varying degrees of quality. And I think the picture gets more and more confusing sometimes the more literature you have because you have stuff and it's hard to tell how good it is. And even well done studies are confusing or just, you know, have a small sample size, whatever, whatever. And I think there's just so much popular science devoted to nutrition that it, you know, it, it's just, it's just worse than other fields because, because of that. And I also think that again, because there's so much popular interest, it gets filtered through non-scientific media. You know, I, right. I've seen a lot of really clickbaity titles. I'm sure you have too. And I think that kind of has a negative feedback loop on the quality of that type of research. Yeah, I think to add to that, I would just say, I think part of the problem is that it's gotten too big and people have also sort of lost, uh, people have had a hard time keeping their eye on the ball. This is something that you see a lot in how modern science is done, where people are like, okay, let's see, how does sugar make people fat? Without saying, okay, does sugar make people fat? Um, and, you know, the approach that we started with, we were like, we noticed that a bunch of things didn't make sense. We don't want to say that we were the only people who noticed this. Other people noticed these things didn't make sense too. Other people noticed that these didn't add up. Um, but I think paying particular attention to that is something that's very rare. So we don't want to say we're the only ones, but sort of zooming out and being like, okay, what do we really care about? We really care about why are people fatter today than they used to be? Right. And other people tend to zoom way in and then they're like, does this intervention work or not? I think that's just like looking too closely at the problem. So given really the repeatability crisis in science, um, what would you say your gut intuition is about the repeatability of most obesity studies? Is it more difficult to study than other things, would you say? Just because there are so many co-founding factors or? Well, it's sort of a large class of studies, right? I mean, there are a lot of replications where people run the same uh, intervention over and over again or different people run similar ones. Is that what you mean? Yes, yeah, sort of how repeatable do you find most of these to be? Are there, is it sort of like a curve where some are very legit and repeatable and some are less so? Or Oh, in the sense of like, are, are things done carefully in the sense that they will replicate? Sure, yeah. Uh, I think pretty much things are good. I don't think there are any huge like replication crisis cases where someone did something and it seemed to be working and then everyone else replicated it and it didn't work out. I don't remember any stories like that. Um, because in most cases, people, you know, try to replicate things and it's just like a small effect size that doesn't stand out, right? And yeah, there are, there are cases where one study works and then none of the other ones do, but does that answer the question? Yes, totally. That's good. So, so there's a sense that the field is fairly healthy in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that a, a related answer, it's not exactly to what you asked, it's just that a diet is really, really highly dimensional and uh, Stefan Lindeberg uh, has these great points in his book where he talks about, you know, if you make a diet high fat, it has to also be low carb. 
right? Because you have to, if, assuming you're, uh, if you're talking about proportions, you got to replace, uh, if you're adding fat, you're reducing everything else. Right. And so it's just hard to study because you can characterize the exact same diet in multiple different ways. And you just got a lot of movie wires. It's, uh, it's really highly, highly hydraulic. I'm not sure if that's a commonly used term, but it's like high dimensionally hydraulic, which is really tricky. Makes it difficult. I, I'm curious, you know, so you, you've looked at a ton of these different environmental um, contaminants, you know, which ones are the most promising you think? And do you think it's kind of like a combination of these uh, environmental contaminants that have uh, contributed to the rise of obesity? Yeah. So this one, we can give a really straightforward answer to lithium just looks like a much stronger candidate than everything else. Starting out, we were really worried that it would be multidimensional, that it was the effect of a bunch of small different contaminants, and that it might be hard to even uh, come up with a good list of what these contaminants were. Um, lithium wasn't even on our original list, but we sort of realized that it, you know, it causes obesity at clinical doses. We were like, right, oh, we does. should look into it. And just everything else we found was, was stronger and stronger, uh, right? We heard about the Pima Indians and it didn't have to be the case that they had lithium in their water and it didn't have to be the case that someone had measured it and written it down, but somebody did. And then we looked at you know, the most obese cities in the U.S. and the least obese cities in the U.S. And maybe there were, would be you know, no measurements of how much lithium was in their groundwater, but there just is, right? The most obese cities seem to be exposed to a lot of, obese, uh, a lot of lithium. And the least obese cities seem to have very little lithium in their water. So yeah, lithium is really the standout uh, at this point. And why do you think lithium levels have increased in the water? Um, is it, you know, are we digging wells in different places? Is it groundwater that's been sitting there for a long time? You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely some effect where deeper aquifers seem to have more lithium in them. And if you are drinking water in the 1950s, you're probably getting most of your water from the surface uh, or from a relatively shallow well. And the further back you go, the shallower the wells are. We started drilling really deep wells recently, and it seems like the deeper aquifers have more lithium in them. But the other big one is uh, fossil fuels. Fossil fuel activity uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes is associated with high levels of lithium. Lithium brines that come up when you're drilling for natural gas or oil, lithium and coal uh, ash when you burn coal for a power plant. Uh, and so we definitely have been using a lot more fossil fuels over the past century. And it kicked off, you know, in the 1970s. And it also just makes sense geographically, right? The United States produces a lot of fossil fuels and we're one of the most obese country, countries. So same thing for uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, a bunch of other countries in the Middle East. So, yeah. Very, very, very interesting. Uh, you know, I've, I've wondered when I first encountered y'all's work, I, I was I was very intrigued and, and I had this thought that, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why you guys were able to kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to say like straight up discover it. We've talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast, but you know, at least at least bring all these ideas together in a really robust manner, which I think is very important, um, is because so much of the energy around environmental issues, issues today is is kind of sucked up by climate change and not like environmental pollutants. Like, and I, I feel like this wasn't the case when I was a kid. There's a lot of focus on environmental pollution as well. Um, do you think that's the case at all? You want to take this one? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think climate change has sucked up most of the air in the room for sure. I mean, um, 
I know that there was recently a little bit of controversy in my home state of Vermont about a climate plan that came up um, that some residents of the state did not think had enough of a focus on biodiversity present preservation and you know conserving land. So I, I definitely think that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I was just talking to somebody today who he's interested in uh, what do you call it a small molecule management. Just the idea that there are a lot of these small molecules in the environment and we don't always know what they do. He was telling me about one case where uh, they were able to reverse engineer. There was something killing a bunch of salmon and they were able to say through a lot of hard work that it was like a, a the byproduct of a chemical added to tires to make the rubber stay together. Better. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, uh, but yeah, so there's definitely less interest. I think people are recognizing there's less interest and maybe things will turn around. I guess I would say in defense of this, climate change seems like a potentially an existential risk. And the rest of these things, well, they may be terrible and bad and we should care about them, probably are not going to lead us to go extinct. Got it, got it. Yeah, so it's it does seem like the low-hanging fruit and the pollution was solved about 10 years ago. Like we pulled the lead out of the walls and the pain, the DDT, like out of the pesticides. And now it's a lot more rigidly controlled. I don't know if the rest of it is sort of smaller in comparisons to what we've already solved from like when we were kids, just back in the 2000s. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and I guess it's an open question whether or not we sort of picked all the little hangers uh, waiting to be found, or if it's just that we did a good job and we briefly, you know, let our guard down. Right. And we're well, going I to find that. Go on. I think to that point, there are also just, you know, natural swings in public opinion. So we spent a long time dealing with pollution and talking about that a lot. And, you know, I think climate change both is a newer topic, but it's also, you know, I think people were tired about, about, of cleaning up their rivers. You know, they did a lot of that. Yeah. And it's also not like we don't still care about lead and arsenic in people's water, right? That can still make the news. Um, maybe what has slowed down is just finding new things to be concerned about, but also, you know, even independent of our work, people are becoming more and more concerned about PFAS, or even actually people are becoming more concerned about lithium, even independent of what we've done. They didn't use to track it. And now the USGS is like, hey, <laughs> levels are way up. What's going on? Right. I, I, I'm curious on, on the lithium front, you know, what kind of policy prescriptions do you guys have? I, you know, I, I know nothing about water treatment, but is there any way to, to kind of minimize the impact of uh, increased lithium in the water? This is a great question. And we don't really know. The tricky thing is that nobody thought lithium was a problem in part because no one really thought it was in our water to any great degree. Um, so we don't really know whether or not standard water treatment techniques will get it out of water. We don't know if water filters work. Distillation would probably work, but we don't know for sure. And yeah. So it's a real, it's an unsolved question. It's yeah. an open question and a real problem. And the tricky thing is that lithium is this really tiny ion, right? It's the, the third element on the periodic table. It's you know, a, a gas that thinks it's a metal. And so it's not going to act like other things that you want to get out of water. So it's just really difficult. So yeah, the EAs, the effective altruists, used to joke they were going to put lithium in the water to because it's used to treat mental health problems. So has that been brought up in any serious sense? Or is that just a meme I've heard on the internet? No, that's real. There's a New York Times article about it. <laughs> Sometimes and you're like not year. for, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, it's such a bad idea. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. also like 
uh, in our mm -hmm. opinion, uh, mm -hmm. my co-author may say more about this, but lithium is used to treat bipolar uh, and sometimes depression, but we basically think it's a sedative. Right? We don't think it's really a treatment. We just think that it would it, like, make sense why that would make you gain weight, I guess, if it's a slight sedative. Yeah, it just makes you yeah. do less. It makes you zone out, <laughs> in our opinion. That is wow. That that's that that's really Yeah, it's a terrible idea. Yeah. We, we yeah. came across <laughs> a lot of terrible ideas. There was some guy who wanted uh people to eat uh Teflon. He was like, We should put shredded Teflon in your food to you know reduce the number of calories per gram. <laughs> yeah so there are a lot of bad ideas out there i mean you also weigh less if you have to get cancers cut off so That's yeah true. well i mean if you really want to weigh less you can you know take powerful stimulants but oh the best stimulant is one that um makes the mitochondrial wall have holes in it so the electrons just fall back down without creating um biologic energy but then people were getting heat stroke because the energy was being let off as heat so that right. was briefly approved by the fda in like the 1990s and it worked great until people yeah died a lot <laughs> it's possible but you know side effects right no problem so I, i'm curious you know we, we just talked about the policy level um what about on the personal level like like what should should we do you know you know how concerned should we, we be generally about sugar or carbohydrates or you know I, I guess the water right there's very it seems like there's little we can do about lithium we should be concerned about it and try and explore what we can do but you know at the personal level what kind of recommendations do you try and give to people yeah so the last post in the series is all about this right part 10 where we're like what can you do and then we talk a little bit about what research we think we want to do and other people can do and the, the short answer is we think there's not a lot people can do about their weight individually uh, we just don't think that there's a lot that you can do to control it uh, based on what we currently know if we figure out for sure what the contaminant is and a way to protect you from it maybe we'll be able to say something Right now, we can't say much. The closest thing we can say to real advice, and we can see it on the blog if you want a, a longer version, is you can move to a place that's leaner, right? You can move higher in the watershed. So you can move to Colorado. You can move to Japan or Vietnam. Uh, we think that those will probably lead you to lose, lose weight. They'll certainly lead you to be exposed to fewer of these contaminants. But that's a pretty big change that a lot of people can't make. So, Very cool. So, so you think diet, exercise very, just has very little impact on what you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And this is really well studied. It just doesn't seem to work. No one's ever found a diet. Right yeah. And, and again, exercise doesn't seem to do much. Right. To be clear, we're pro exercise and pro healthy eating. Gotcha. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think to a certain degree, this is kind of in, encouraging for exercise, right? Like that you should be thinking about and focusing on all the other benefits that you get. Right. Yeah, it's easy to, you know, go and work out and be like, oh, I haven't lost any weight. I'm going to quit. You shouldn't quit. You should keep exercising because gotcha. it's good for you in other ways. And again, you should, you should care a lot about what you're eating. You should try to eat in a way that's going to make you healthy and full of energy, which may mean eating more and not putting yourself on an intense starvation diet because we just don't think you're going to lose much weight. And if you do, you won't keep it off. Gotcha. So, so it's, essentially, it's something like... Um... You, know, you should try to eat healthy and you should try to exercise for, for other reasons, but you should worry less about your weight because there's, uh, there's a lot of things you can't control at the end of the yeah. day. We don't think there's much you can do about it. We think that's really clearly borne out by the research. Yeah, I um, couldn't have said it better myself. Very, very cool. Very cool. It, it's such an interesting, um, 
Yeah, just, you know, with diet culture in the U.S. and just, like, thinking about that and everyone has their own specific answer. And at the end of the yeah. day, reps is something, you know, just it, just completely out of left field, right? Yeah, and, well, one of the big casualties of the obesity epidemic, and I think this is tragic, is, like, a better understanding of nutrition. Because when you talk about nutrition science right now, it's mostly what do you need to eat to lose weight, what do you need to eat to avoid getting fat. And so we right. don't really understand, as far as I know, this isn't my... You know, we haven't looked closely at this, but we don't really know what does it mean to eat good if we're not talking about, you know, staying skinny, right? How do you eat to be maximally energetic, right? How do you eat to just feel really good all the time? I don't know if we know that. And I think that it's been very distracting that people have been focusing on staying lean, right? which is too bad. Uh, it, yeah, if we, if we do know that, it's definitely not making the clickbait headlines. Right, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But somebody should be writing, you know, 10 foods that they won't make you lean, but you'll feel great all the time. I want to, I want to read that. Maybe we'll write that next. I think the answer is kale. I'm pretty sure it's kale. kale. Yes, eat more kale. <laughs> eat more kale. Back in college, poor Will used to grind up, blend up kale in water and then call it a kale smoothie. So I think he's well, into that idea. I like kale. Yeah, okay. Good. And you yeah. felt great, right? I felt great. Mm -hmm. I felt, well, <laughs> and going off that, you know, do you guys have suspicions about like, you know, what foods are generally better for people to consume? Is it like vegetables and like, you know, it's like common sense stuff or anything? Potatoes. Different? Potatoes. Definitely potatoes. Really? Yep. Yep. They're basically a complete everything. You should be able to live basically off potatoes. So they don't have any vitamin C. So if you do it for too long, you, you will get scurvy. Short of gotcha. that, I think they're great. So potatoes and oranges and you're good to go. One of the things that we discovered uh, throughout this is just that people around the world have eaten historically really, really different. And all of them have seen fine. So I think if you get your macronutrients and you're getting you know, enough to not get scurvy or beriberi, you'll probably be okay. Is that just because humans, uh, you know, like our bodies are quite... Are, are very good at self-regulating, you know, weight and things like that, if there's not external pressure from like environmental contaminants. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're just a finely tuned machine. And unless we basically drug you, there's not a lot you can do to throw that out of whack. Very cool. Very cool. And there are uh, some, you know, there's some interesting cases, corner cases like scurvy, where uh, vitamin C was just so prevalent in our ancestral environment that we never evolved the ability to like notice, am I getting enough of it? And so if you are stuck on a ship for months, it becomes a problem. For 99% you know, of the stuff that your body needs, you're really highly engineered to pick up on that. Got it, got it. I, I, I'm curious, you know, I, we've got a lot of different... Um interventions that that people try for you know to work solve try and solve obesity uh i guess the big one i'm thinking of right now is um you know gastric bypass surgery and i i guess that that works because it physically constrains the amount you can consume which i guess you know you starve yourself um but but that seems to be different than you know the environmental contaminant problem right because it's just like if you truly were able to uh, constrain how much energy is going into, you know, a human, like, uh, of course, they're going to lose weight to some extent. Or does that, uh, do gastric bypasses just not work long term? I don't know. Yeah, this is a good question. My impression was that nobody knows why it works, Interesting. Um, that it seems to work and they're not sure. But this isn't something we've looked into in great depth. I don't know if my co-author has any sense of that beyond what I do. Yeah, I don't have uh, a super great sense 
Um, I do, I, I think my understanding is also that it works, but I haven't really looked into it super closely. And I will say an interesting part of this project was just there were lots of things that I thought were obviously true that did not end up being true. So maybe they don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things where we're just gonna be like, we don't know because a lot of things that we took for common sense just didn't pan out. Uh, so we're gonna try to be very careful about what we say <laughs> and only talk about things we really looked into. That's wise. And, and what, was, what was probably the most surprising thing that you thought was just common sense, like this is clearly true. And then you go in and you look at it and like, this is like, wow, that was just completely wrong. Um, probably, I mean, besides the obvious ones, like calories in, calories out and yeah. don't eat fat. I think the one for me at least was um, that class doesn't have much of an effect, right? Class and income just don't seem that closely correlated and maybe not related at all. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, there might be a small relationship it's yeah, same for rust. me as well. Definitely, I think common sense is that rich people are skinny, poor people are fat. Very small effect, if any, definitely. Yeah, and it may be, even be causal in the opposite direction. It may be that if you are fat, you become poorer, and if you are really skinny, you become richer, right? So there's even if there is a relationship, it's not strong, and it may actually be running in the opposite direction. Got it, got it. What, what do you guys, you know, if you were uh, the dictators of the the nutrition science field, you know where would you where would you point everybody's energy next? Nutrition for for energy or nutrition for weight loss? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, yeah, it just it's really sad because nutrition seems like it could be a really interesting field, but most people are focusing on this one particular thing. It kind of sounds like that that would be you know the answer from you guys then, right? Is like focus on energy instead of um, just weight loss. Yeah, what do we want from nutrition if we don't want to lose weight? Um, I guess I'm not sure what things nutrition can influence. That'd be really interesting. My right. bet is that energy definitely matters. But what if we discover if you eat exactly right, you only need to sleep three hours a night. Now, I don't know if you know what you eat has an influence on how much you sleep, but it seems plausible. Right. That'd be a really good discovery. Um, it's worth trying. Maybe, um, maybe we could learn more about early childhood nutrition. Again, I'm not sure what gains are to be picked up there, but it'd be interesting. I guess I'd say it just seems like, it seems like the wild west out there. It seems like we know very little. And again, we haven't looked into nutrition in great depth. So maybe there's a bunch we don't know about. We were focusing pretty clearly on this one topic, but those, I, those I, are... I think the one for me would be something along the lines of a better sending understanding of IBS and other food sensitivities, because that seems like quite a big problem. Um, and everyone I personally know who has IBS or food allergies, um, or sorry, not food allergies, but a food sensitivity has had a really difficult time interacting with the traditional medical system. Gotcha. Um, and it seems like, you know, I, I know that people are researching this, but I think that is something that really negatively impacts the quality of life for a lot of people. That would be great to know more about. Yeah, I entirely endorse that too. And this is something that we uh, would also be interested in working on at some point. We have, um, we have a chapter that hasn't gotten published yet because it got really huge on aluminum because a lot of oh, aluminum is added to, to foods. And uh, we don't think right now that aluminum causes obesity, but it's definitely being added to a lot of foods or different aluminum compounds. And so uh, I'm 
curious. I sort of have a hunch that it might be related to food sensitivities, but you know, who knows? I, I'm curious, you know, you've got the aluminum post coming up and you probably break that up into maybe couple, it's, it's maybe, gigantic. <laughs> it's huge. Maybe put it in a couple different sections or something. But uh, other than that, you know, what is next for you guys? Like, what do you want to explore next? And I know you might not want to get into it here, but we're, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. So right now we're, we're looking to collect funding to do some empirical work to follow up on our obesity research. Very right? cool. Because we'd really like to, uh, run some experiments and see if we can actually cure obesity or, you know, reduce it at least, uh, or at very least track right. down more information about it. Um, in terms of writing, I think uh, maybe my co-author feels different. I think the things that we want to write are things that have to be written just right to, to work. So, right. you know, we can say in general uh, stuff that is related to control systems continues to interest us. I don't know. You want to add anything to that? We're trying to write stuff that's fun. Yeah, we're trying to write stuff that's fun. It will be eclectic, right? We're going to write a bunch of stuff. We do have a couple big projects on the line, but anything that's big enough to like take the time to write it really right, uh, you know, I don't want to share it until it is right. Imagine if we had tried to describe the obesity idea, you know, just two or three sentences. You would have been like, well, oh, okay. <laughs> You have to lay it all out, right? You had to be like, okay, here are these mysteries. Now here's why none of the things that you think answer these work. Now here's, you know, some things have to be developed. And I think that the big things we have in the pipeline need to be developed properly. That's great. That's great. And partially that is just that we have not figured out exactly how to talk about them with other people yet. We're not sure that what framing makes sense. Right. And that's, that's an important aspect of it. Um, I'm curious, you know, th there's this huge movement in the 2000s, in particular the 2000s, I guess it's 2010s as well, that was just anti, you know, nutrition research, like nutrition research is all bunk. This is all, they're all wrong. The food pyramid is terrible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, was that critique just wrong all along? Um, are you referring to like Gary Taubes' work? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Taubes is probably the, the biggest proponent that I can think of, of like, um, really like being like, you know, mainline nu nutrition research is just really bad. Uh, Tobbs is an interesting figure. Uh, I have to admit that I haven't read any of his books all the way through, but I'm familiar with his work. And I think the tricky thing is that a lot of his criticisms are accurate, but a lot of his solutions are wrong. Gotcha. So, you know, when he said uh, that, you know, it's not fat, he was right. It's not fat. Fat <laughs> doesn't make you fat. And he was totally right that a lot of that research was uh, either shoddy or just the, the conclusions were wrong. Um, but also when he turned around and said, it is definitely sugar and had his particular theory, um, you know, that was not, uh, it didn't pan out. Got it. Does that answer the question? Yes. I mean, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very broad, it's a hard question, right? But like, uh, yeah, I think that directionally it does answer it. Yeah. And. You know, I, I, I've, I've demonized sugar for so, for so long. I'm just curious. Uh, should we be worried about sugar in some sense for the type 2 diabetes risk? Or is that also just like, you know, really, you're going to be fine? Like, uh, just worry about that less in general. Great question. I mean, I think you should be worried about sugar in terms of your teeth. Your teeth. Seems, <laughs> I mean, again, this is something we haven't looked into. And maybe this right, is right. a misconception. But uh, <laughs> right now, I would guess it probably still causes cavities. Gotcha. Um yeah, well, I, I mean, know that. Go on. 
Uh, I try to eat low sugar because sugar makes me break out. Okay. <laughs> the irritants, you know, that that's uh, that's a great point. Yeah, I but think the I, sugar and cavities thing is mainly soft drinks. If you let it sit on your teeth, then I just read a couple of articles that that's really what gives you mostly cavities is you're just laying soft drinks and that sugar sit on your teeth. So I don't know if that's the yeah, main concern with that. that. Yeah. Well, I know that, uh, or I've heard, I haven't looked into it. I've heard that the British had a big problem with sugar when they started importing it and it did really terrible things to their teeth in like, I don't know, the 1700s or something. Well, in the 1700s, I feel like everyone had terrible teeth. I've heard, again, just claims that it was related to the fact that they started importing sugar and putting it in their tea. Hmm. But I mean, yeah, history was not a good time to have teeth uh, in general. Well, there were specific claims uh, that you could tell whether or not someone was rich enough to have sugar in their drink uh, by the quality of their teeth. Gotcha. So again, don't want to say that I am sure that was true, but that is something I've heard. I think I would say that I, I generally subscribe to sort of a whole foods, real foods diet in terms of deciding what I'll eat. I have to say doing research on PFAS and seeing the numbers of how much PFAS are in grocery store cakes (laughs) really made me never want to eat a grocery store cake again. Um, So generally, you know, like if you're making home, you know, having a homemade baked good or you want to add sugar to your coffee, I feel like that's different than eating a Twinkie. Probably okay. Yeah, this is definitely true, which is just that processed foods has a lot of weird stuff in it. Probably stuff that we don't even know about. And yeah, it's not like we're sure that these things cause cancer, which is like things that were not intended to be eaten that are definitely in there. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so so uh, I, I like that. I like that. And I think that's, uh, it, that's, it's just not worth taking the risk, right? right. Don't, don't, they like, may be no. totally benign, but you know, it's still mystery chemicals in your food. Yes, exactly. And you put that in your body and you, you want to be careful about that. It, yeah. And I think what my co-author said is really right which is that the same thing, right? The things you think are identical, if you buy it at a store versus if you make it at home, they may really be different in terms of what different. else you're getting exposed to. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So like, are but cookies should... good or bad? Like which cookies? They can be really different. You, if you grind your own flour, <laughs> then they're going to be really different than if you buy them from Walmart. I do encourage everyone to have cake on their birthday. Good. Good stuff. I love it. I love it. You know, I've got one more kind of big line of questions, then I want to open up to Faith to see if she has any more. You know, you two are our siblings, which I think is really cool. And, uh, you know, Faith and I are siblings, and we've worked on a lot of projects together and had a, had a ton of fun and been very productive. You think generally just, you know, people should work on more projects with their siblings? It seems like a, a lot of people like, like don't do this, but it's someone that you've known for as long as you possibly could have in most cases. And uh, you think the decline of Western civilization is because there's smaller families. So you have less siblings. Less siblings to work with. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but that's a great, that's a great theory. Um, maybe we'll write something about that. Uh, I know Astral Codex 10 recently had something about great families. Great families. Yes. A, maybe an under, underexplored dimension. I think that people should lean more on their high trust relationships. Interesting. Right? So I have college friends who are, you know, not quite like a brother to me, but we're really close and we've known each other for a long time and we can really trust each other. Or high school friends where I'm willing to argue uh, at a different level of intensity because I know that, you know, there's no way I can jeopardize this relationship. Right. I can really tell him what I think. And, and I think that people 
could lean on those more because you can get more out of a relationship where you can be really honest with someone. You can, I would say I if you know. can track someone down at Thanksgiving, you can lend them anything, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. You have hopefully high trust relationships and you can go in there and um, I don't know, really bare your soul. It's easier than with people who just met. Well, I mean, not always. Sometimes you meet someone and you're like, wow, we really click. But um, you want the Orville and Wilbur Wright thing. Right, right, right. It, it seems to be easier than just meeting somebody at the slots at Vegas and then, you know, we're going to do this great project together. It seems like fraught with peril. Exactly. Um, there's just a different level of trust there. Very cool. I don't know if my, my co-author has anything to add. I enjoy working with you. I, en I enjoy working with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys have put out a, a great work product together. Uh, Thank you. Faith, do you have any, do you have any um, parting questions before closing off? Oh, I wanted to get your opinion on uh, semaglutide, the new glucagon-like molecule that's coming out. Do you think that's probably bunk? The initial results look pretty promising, but I guess that's the same thing with every new cure for obesity that comes out. Yeah. Um, well, we'll, we'll say that we or at least I have heard good things. Um, but I think this sort of points to the difference of opinion that we have with how other people have done research, uh, which is just that, you know, there's too much out there. You can't read everything. You really literally can't, especially in a field this big. And we're just not very interested in things that have to do with cures, except insofar as they tell us like what else is going on. So it's possible that semaglutide does cure obesity, and that would be great from a practical standpoint. But in terms of answering the question, you know, why are we fatter now than we were in the 1960s? doesn't seem like it answers any of that question, which is part of why we haven't uh, pursued it. So sorry to soapbox off of that, but it looks good, but, you know, we haven't gone that deep. Makes sense. Looks well, like it doesn't give you heat strokes, so it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's definitely good. Uh, it would be great if we had a cure, right? There, there are really good reasons that you would just want to, um, you'd want to be leaner. A lot of people want it and that would be really positive, but uh, it'd also be good to figure out what happened. And right now we don't really know. Very cool. Well, Slimebolt, Timebolt, uh, thank you both so much for taking the time to come on. I knew you guys are, you're raising money for a, a new project. You know. How can people contact you if they, they want to contribute and, and help you guys uh, get that started? And, um, and where should we send people? Absolutely. They can look at our blog at slimeoldtimeold.com. Uh, and we have a Twitter account uh, at moldtime, mold underscore time. And they can email us at slimeoldtimemold at gmail.com. All right. Well, thank you both. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. 